I kind of feel like I should uh, bring the uh, lectern down to the floor and move back a little bit. Everybody's in the back there tonight. That's typical for a Baptist church, I suppose. Um, I tell people, I don't know why all the, uh, all the high-priced seats at Gillette Stadium are in the front, right? All the high-priced seats in the Baptist church are in the back. That's just the way that works, I guess. Uh, glad you came back this evening. Um, I want to look at an important topic with you, kind of a follow-up actually on uh, the message this morning. Maybe uh, answer a few questions and help in regard to a few things we looked at today. Before we did, I thought uh, it might be helpful just a, uh, a few comments about um, you know, what has happened in uh, the Middle East. I don't know if you read any news today or certainly all heard of that yesterday and we're following this uh, war that uh, has been really brought upon Israel by um, Hamas and this attack um, Israel is referring to this as their 9-11, which um, really on the scale of things, that's what it looks like and appears to be. Uh, today I was uh, just catching up with that a little bit and learned that this uh, attack occurred on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. Uh, you know what Yom Kippur is? Um, you would recognize it. It's in the Old Testament. It's the Day of Atonement. And it was 50 years ago, 1973, that uh, there was a similar kind of attack upon uh, Israel during that war. And uh, so this was kind of the 50th year anniversary of that. And you think about this conflict as it, as it plays out, it really, as, as typically does, uh, it has biblical ramifications that, that these are not new things, they're actually very old things. Um, the people now in the Gaza Strip, referred to as Palestinians. You know where the Gaza Strip is? You know, as I'm, as I'm watching the news, I'm looking at these cities that they're talking about, and they're talking about Ashkelon and Ashdod. And these are all biblical cities that you read of in the Bible. Those were the, the five, part of the five cities of the Philistines. Um, probably the most famous Philistine was who? Goliath. Goliath of Gath, and um, these were other cities a part of that, and um, I don't think that the Palestinians are descendants of the Philistines, uh, but they are descendants of another biblical figure, actually a son of Abraham, uh, through Ishmael, and those are the uh, Arab people there, and they, they occupy that place in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, and there has been animosity between them for millennia. Um, and a lot of that goes back to the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. Remember reading about that, Genesis 16, and all that took place and, and played out there? What we're seeing really played out on the screen, on the screen is just animosity that began all the way back then. And uh, so we shouldn't be necessarily surprised. Uh, my, my concern for you as uh, your pastor is undoubtedly there will be people that will take advantage of this in the days and they'll say, well, this is it. Um, Jesus is coming. And it might be. Uh, but it could happen right now. And it could happen 20 years from now or 50 years from now. Uh, but whenever something stirs up in the Middle East, you always get all the prophecy people that get all worked up about this. And they start putting dots together and connecting things together. And um, it's not always accurate. And so don't be uh, fearful and frightened. Um, we should actually live every single day as if Jesus is coming. And these kind of things shouldn't make us think, oh, no, I better get ready. Um, they should make us just realize that God's timing's right on schedule. These kinds of things are going to happen. And uh, while we're aware of them and alert for them, we're not afraid of what will happen. And we know it's in God's care. So um, just maybe a little help in thinking about what's going to come upon us these next several days for sure as we hear of war in the Middle East. 
Well, tonight, um, actually, you're going to need to be prepared to do a lot of turning in your Bible. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture tonight, because what I'd like to do tonight is, is like I said, follow up on the, the message this morning where we talked about God's keeping us and preserving us. And I want to speak to you tonight on this aspect of what's commonly referred to as uh, the perseverance of the saints. And I want to uh, open with this uh, illustration. It was in 2004 that a book came out, and the author of that book, it was a small book, I read it soon after it came out, it was called Stop Dating the Church. And it was, it was really a good, a good book. The author was trying to put out the idea that a lot of people today are not committed to a church. They kind of date different churches, and they see how that church goes, and once they find something they don't like, they go to the next one, and they kind of just you know, <laughs> mill around among Christian people, but never really commit and give themselves to one particular body to pull together. And uh, it was it was well written. It was um, biblically based. I think that church now, that book now is called "Why Church Matters." They've changed the title of it. And uh, interestingly enough, I reread that book in 2018 with a group of pastors. There's a group of five or six pastors that we get together about every six months. We assign a book and we read it and we get together and talk about it and all of the kinds of pastor things that we talk about. Uh, but we read that book back in 2018, and I went through it again and, and noted some good things about that book. Uh, after that, in the year 2019, the author of that book made an amazing proclamation. Uh, the author of that book, his name is Josh Harris. He's written other books. Uh, he was a well-known speaker on the evangelical circuit. Uh, he spoke at large conferences. He pastored a large church in Maryland. Um, Well-known in a lot of um, even conservative evangelical circles. And it was in 2019 that this guy who had written these books and, and had all of this notoriety said this, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there's a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I am not there now. Many of you probably heard that. <clears throat> I think maybe I've even mentioned that before. But that declaration just kind of sent rippling effects through Christian communities and churches. And uh, people began to ask questions. How can somebody so convinced of the gospel and preach the gospel and write about the gospel now come to the point where they say, I don't believe any of it. I'm no longer a Christian. What happened? How do you explain that? Of course, he's not the only one. There are others. Uh, even other prominent uh, people within the realm of evangelical Christianity. How do you explain that? And this is a debated topic among some Bible-believing people. You can explain that perhaps by saying, well, what has really taken place is that this guy obviously understood the gospel, knew the gospel, believed the gospel, he was saved, and somehow he lost that. And therefore he's no longer saved. Somewhere along the way he, he lost his salvation. He chose to believe in Christ and he chose to not believe in Christ. And he's lost his salvation. Some people who um, hold to the truth of God's word would take that position. 
But what really is, is, a, is a, a right way, I think, to look at that? As I said, this is a debated topic among people. Can someone really lose their salvation once they have it? But really, the more, the more pressing question for us tonight, I think, in light of this, and I'll try to make this clear, is this question. If someone like that, who says they're saved and even preaches and writes about it and then is not, how can I know that I'm really saved? Can I really know that? Can I be assured of that? If someone like that turns away, what about me? And that's kind of the effect it had on many people was, what's going to keep me? Now, if I can't know for sure that I'm truly God's child, I'm truly safe, then it breeds all kinds of insecurities in me. I, I get paralyzed in my Christian life because that's the thing I'm always hung up on. And it'll affect ultimately even my service for Christ. On the other hand, there is the thinking or the problem that some people can say, well, of course I'm saved. When I was eight years old, I prayed. And I have it right here in my Bible, written down. I was eight years old, I prayed. And I'm so sure of that, that I never have to open my Bible again from that day. And maybe they live a life that, that gives no testimony, actually, of living for Christ and being saved. But when you question about it, they say, but look at my Bible. When I was eight years old, this is what I did. So there's those two kinds of ideas around this idea of eternal security. Well, I want to begin tonight with this. Uh, I want you to look at 1 John chapter 5. Again, we're going to turn in our Bibles to more than a dozen references tonight, so you can write these down if you'd like. I will have um, some of the references on the screen. If you want to take a picture with your phone, that's fine. Here's what the Lord wants you to know. 1 John 5, 13, a familiar verse to most of you. I write these things, John says, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you would what? That you would know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want you to guess. It's not his desire that you would be wondering about this all the time. He does want you to know. And he says, I've given you certain things that you would know. That's the idea of experientially come to a firm realization of these things. And so how can we know? How can I really know this and be assured of this? And that's our topic tonight, this perseverance of the saints. What does that mean? We're going to look at, at what God says about salvation, what it is, and then the means through which God, God works that salvation in us. And what does that look like? Okay. All right, let's pray, and then we'll look at these things. Lord, help us tonight in just these few moments that we have, that we really would uh, know your mind on this matter, and that it would help us, and that we would be uh, firm in our understanding of what salvation is, how you work it, ways that you work through us to work it out. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin tonight by noting the biblical teaching on salvation and perseverance. Look at John chapter 3, okay? What does the Bible say happens when somebody is saved or safe? What actually takes place? We would put it this way, what does God do at salvation? Well, that's really small, I'm sorry, I hope this comes out all right. What does God do at salvation? Look at John chapter 3. Notice verse 36. These are the words of Jesus where we read, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Notice Jesus just gives two categories. 
Either you believe in the Son of God, or you do not, and the do not is describing here as not obeying Him. Two categories of people. But my point is, I want you to look at, when somebody believes in the Son, what do they get? What do they get? What kind of life? How eternal is eternal? It's everlasting, it's unending, it's, it's eternal. So the Bible tells us that all of us are born into this world dead, Ephesians chapter 2. Dead in trespasses and sins, unresponsive to God. What God does through salvation is He grants life. And it's a life that is unending, it's eternal. You say, well, if, if, if that's the case, then why do I die physically? Well, this is a different kind of life that he's talking about. In fact, look at John chapter 6, just a few chapters over. And Jesus says this in verse 37. This is after um, the feeding of the 5,000 the previous day. Jesus is now taking that and he gives them what's called the bread of life discourse. That is what we find in John chapter 6. And look at verse 37. Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Why is that the case? Why will Jesus never cast them out? Look at verse 38. For because I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, what is that will? What is the will of the one who sent him? And that's what's answered in the next verse, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up when? On the last day. Verse 40 for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have what? Eternal life. And here's what that looks like. I will raise Him up when? On the last day. What's the kind of life that Jesus is talking about? It's not this physical, current life. He's saying, even if you die in, physically in this life, I give people eternal life, and on the last day, I will raise those people, and that life will continue. And what he's saying is even physical death doesn't end this eternal life. Once you have it, you have it. Jesus gives further confirmation of the security of this. If you look over at chapter 10, and this is a familiar passage on this idea of, of God's preserving us. John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them this eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given to them me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, are united in this purpose of holding on to these sheep. And it's this great idea of, of security that Jesus says, I know these sheep, they follow me, I give them this eternal life, and it's like they're doubly held in this way. You say, well, what does somebody say who, come, who says, well, maybe somebody can lose their salvation, and this would be their interpretation of the passage is that this passage is saying no one can snatch them out of the hand, but maybe I can jump out of his hand. And to me, it just defeats the entire picture that Jesus is giving. He's talking about securely in his hand, I know these sheep, they will are mine forever. So what does God do at salvation? He gives eternal life, and the nature of that life is that it is eternal. It's not temporary. Can you have eternal life and then not have eternal life? If you can have it and not have it, it was never eternal, right? 
And that's the point of that phrase, eternal, everlasting life. But what else does God do at salvation? That when someone is genuinely saved, what else does he do? Look at Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, and look at verse 3. We read this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, let me warn you, this is a trick question. Uh, When were you baptized into Christ? Okay, a lot of you might be thinking what goes on back here, right? Um, baptized in water, right? But, but that is a baptism into what? Into water. This says you're baptized into who? A person into Christ. When were you baptized into Christ? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's when you came to faith in Christ, the Bible says that you were baptized into his body. You were united with him. Water baptism is a picture of that spiritual reality. But this is talking about spirit baptism. Verse 3, all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And now notice verse 5, for if we have been what? united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him and as a resurrection like his. And Romans chapter 6 teaches us this vital truth of what we call union with Christ. We are united to him by faith, identified with him through belief upon him that you are actually placed into Christ. That happens at salvation. Now, if you hold the position that says, well, people can lose their salvation, what you're saying then, Romans 6 says this, you can be united to Christ, and then somehow you can ununite yourself to Christ. But the Bible never gives that picture. It says once you are united with him by faith, you're always united to him now and forever in Christ, that's how Paul speaks about it. So what does God do at salvation? He unites us with Christ. What else does he do at salvation? Well, look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 13, in this hymn that Paul begins his epistle with, this third stanza, verse 13, Paul writes, In him, speaking of Jesus, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, okay? When did that happen for you, right? We're talking about the point of salvation. I heard the gospel, my eyes were open, believe in Christ. Here's what happened. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When you were saved and you came to faith in Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. What is a seal? A seal was a mark of authority. A king would have a ring, a signet ring, and it was his seal. And They would sign a document, and they would roll that up and seal it and put wax on it, and he would push his ring into the wax as the the seal of the king. This is by authority of the king. This belongs to the king. It's his official word. And that's the idea that when you came to Christ, God gave you the Holy Spirit, and that was the seal, the sign of authority by the king of kings that you belong to him. And everything he's promised to you will happen in the end. You will be redeemed body, soul, and spirit forever. 
Now, this is what God does at salvation. And if, if I can trust in Christ and be sealed with the Holy Spirit and say, well, maybe I can lose my salvation, then that would mean I can be what? Unsealed, right? Losing the Holy Spirit somehow. And again, the, the Scripture just never speaks in those terms. So God seals us with the Holy Spirit. And these are all pictures, and I've given you just a few in the Bible that speak of the permanence of this idea of somebody when they come to faith in Christ. And in fact, if God starts in this work, this is something he's going to finish. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Just one book over, Philippians chapter 1. And Paul, writing to the believers at Philippi, says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, when I came to Philippi, remember Acts 16, and there's the, the story of Lydia by the sea, there's the story of the Philippian jailer, and Paul's thinking back, and he's thinking, the first day I came to you and brought the gospel to you, and you received, and that little church was started, I rejoice in that from the first day until now. And now look at verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, what's that work he's talking about? What's the work he's talking about? He's talking about what he referenced in verse 5, your partnership in the gospel, that first day when I brought the gospel to you. He that began this good work, he saved you through the preaching of that gospel. What's he going to do in verse 6? He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When you received the gospel, you received eternal life, you were united with Christ, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and God is going to finish that work until the end. So this is what God does at salvation. He begins these things in us and he works them out in our life until we see him face to face. This is our assurance. But the question is, how does God do this? I mean, God could do this any number of ways, right? He could just make it happen. But the fact is, is that God uses means He uses things to accomplish this. What means does he use to accomplish giving us eternal life, union with Christ, and sealing us with the Holy Spirit? We've seen it in all of those passages. But let me show it to you. Look at the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Very familiar verses. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. You would know the verse, you could quote the verse, but just notice toward the middle of the verse it says, you have been saved. That's what we're talking about, right? You've been saved, Paul says to these Ephesian believers. You've, you've received eternal life. You've been united with Christ. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You've been saved what is the means, the beginning of verse 8? This was by grace and through what? Through faith. So what is the means? This is all by God's grace. It's something that He does. We don't deserve it. It's gracious of God to do this. And it's through this means of faith. And then the verse goes on, and this is not your own doing. What is not our own doing? God's grace is not our own doing. Being saved is not our own doing. And we say, well, but through faith is, right? I mean, I do something. That's a means. And in the end, he says, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Grammatically, it's all of those things. Grace, salvation, the faith is God's gift to you. 
the ability to believe and receive. This is what Paul is making plain. Even my faith to believe is, is given by God. It's a gift from him. Well, how else do you explain dead people unresponsive to God coming to him in this way unless God does that? Well, you say... Okay, if that's the case, God even gives me this faith to believe. How do I know I have that? Is there such a thing as a false kind of faith? To to believe maybe to some degree, but not to the ultimate degree of saving faith. Well, let me show you this. Look at John chapter 8. Gospel of John, the Lord's words again in John chapter 8. Jesus is uh, speaking at one of the Jewish feasts. He's mentioned that he is the light of the world in John 8 and verse 12, and he, he speaks of that to the crowd. He then goes on to describe who he is, He says in verse uh, 24, um, I told you, you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that that I am this light, I am the one that's come to deliver, you'll die in your sins. Um, Verse 28, Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, you'll know that I am He. He's talking about His future crucifixion there. I don't think they get the whole picture. But look in the end in verse 30, it says, as he was saying these things, many what? Believed in him. And you say, well, yeah, that's that's fantastic. There was believers there. They believed in Jesus. Here's the problem. The rest of the passage demonstrates that those people didn't really believe. Look at how they're spoken of. Verse 31, so Jesus said to these Jews who had believed in him, and we'll come back to that verse in a minute, Later on, these people are going to argue that they really don't need Jesus to deliver them from anything because they are Abraham's children and have always been free. In verse 39, they're going to say things like, Abraham's our father. Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. And Jesus is going to go on with this argument, and eventually he's going to tell them in verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father who? The devil. These are the same people in verse 30 that believed. So what that tells us is there is a kind of belief that is a false professing belief. And Jesus cuts to the quick of it in verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide Abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus says, you say you believe, but here's what belief looks like. You're truly my disciples if you what? Abide, the word is to remain. If you remain with my words... If you continue to keep taking in what I'm saying and your confidence in those things doesn't waver, you remain in that condition. What's going to happen, we're going to find with these people when you read the Gospel of John is when you come to the end of John and there is this decision, who will you have, Jesus or Barabbas? Who do they choose? Barabbas, ultimately they've said, well, we used to like what he says, but not anymore. Why? They never remained. So how do I know if I have this genuine kind of faith? 
Jesus says, you're truly my disciples. You know this because you remain in it. You abide in it. How God saves, he saves by grace through faith. And genuine faith perseveres. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Here's where else the New Testament speaks about this. Hebrews chapter 3. Remember the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish people. They are professed followers of Jesus. They are being pressed by persecution, tempted to turn back to the old Mosaic system. And they're receiving a lot of flack from their peers. And the whole point of the book of Hebrews is keep on pursuing Christ. Continue this way. And here's something that the writer says in verse 14, Hebrews 3, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. He's saying, we have truly come to partake of Christ, and we are truly, genuinely His, united with Christ, sealed, if indeed we what? Hold our original confidence, how long? To the end. point he's making is this. Following Christ isn't just a one-time kind of prayer that I pray. That genuine faith looks like persevering even under times of persecution. You can't burn it out of people. They persevere to the end. That's the genuine kind of faith. Now, we have biblical illustrations of this. And these names you'll recognize, and I do want to look at these passages. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, we're just introduced to a name here. And we're going to look at where this name occurs elsewhere in the Scripture. Colossians 4, Paul is writing from prison in Rome. He writes the book of Colossians as he wraps up his book and gives his final goodbye. He says in verse 14, Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does a guy named what? Demas. You ever heard of him? All right, look, he's mentioned again. Who is Demas? At this point, who is Demas? Look at the little book of Philemon. It's, it's a little one-chapter book right before Hebrews. And look at what Paul says about this guy, Demas. Philemon was written around the same time as Colossians during Paul's Roman imprisonment. This is about oh, 60 A.D., Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Look at verse 23 of Philemon, only one chapter. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, here's our guy, Demas, and Luke, and they are all Paul's what? Fellow workers. What does that mean? These guys traveled with Paul. Certainly they suffered deprivation with Paul. Certainly they preached the gospel like Paul. And Demas, at this point, Paul is saying, these are my fellow workers. But now turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. You'll have to go backwards in your Bible. And when you go back to 2 Timothy to the left, you're actually going forward about seven or eight years from when he wrote Philemon. He calls Demas a fellow worker around 60 AD, writing from Rome. And now you're in 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul's second Roman imprisonment now, and he knows that this is going to be the last. This will be his last. He's, he's going to die. He'll never come out of prison. Verse 9, he writes to Timothy, a young man in the faith, his young man that he has mentored, and he says in verse 9 of 2 Timothy 4, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has what? He's deserted me. And he's gone to Thessalonica. And we hear nothing more about this man. This guy was a fellow worker. Paul called him that. What happened? Obviously, the way that Paul describes him here, his love was for this present world and not for the world to come. 
it seems to indicate that Paul is saying he never had this. Because he forsook it. His faith didn't persevere. And he never had it. And the Bible concedes that there are those who fall away and they may look like true converts. Remember the Lord, what he spoke of in Matthew chapter 7, frightening verses. In verse 21, he says, On that day, there will be those that say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do a litany of things? And remember what Jesus says? What will his response be? I never knew you. You had the trappings of this, and even what looked like on the outside was genuine and real, but it wasn't. I never knew you. Can you think of any examples that fit into that category, apart from Demas? How about one in Jesus' own hand-picked apostolic company, Judas? What I find interesting is when you read through the Gospels and you read about even the disciples performing miracles when Jesus sent them out. Nobody's looking at Judas and going, hey, he couldn't cast out that demon. What do you think's wrong with that guy? He's not like the rest of us. When they're seated around the table at the Last Supper and Jesus says, one of you will betray me, none of them pointed the finger and said, oh yeah, that's Judas. He couldn't cast out that demon. No, they're all saying, is it me? Is it me? Now, Jesus knew, according to John chapter 6, Jesus knew, he says, all of you are with me except the son of perdition. But the others didn't know. Jesus speaks in the parable of the sower, and he talks about the word of God that, that is cast out, and it falls on different kinds of soils. And there's a kind of soil, it's a rocky soil, but the seed hits the soil enough and it gets down in the cracks and he says it springs up and it looks like there's life there. But he said the sun rises and the heat scorches the weed and it withers and it falls away. And he said this is what it's like in the kingdom of God, that there are people that look like they receive the gospel in truth, even with joy. And but when it gets really difficult and tough to follow Jesus in that way, they wilt, as it were. And there was no root in them. But there's another guy in the New Testament. Another guy that we need to look at. Look at Acts chapter 12. Okay, does that mean... The Christian people, truly Christian people, they never stumble, they never fall, they, they always have this confidence of faith, they always live as they should. Well, look at Acts 12, we're introduced to another guy. Uh, Peter is imprisoned by Herod, and Herod's about ready to do away with him after Herod's already killed James. He thinks it's a good idea to, to do Peter too. Excuse me. And he says, um, verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was what? Mark. And here we're just introduced to this guy. John Mark, sometimes he's referred to as. Okay? What do we know about this guy? Well, obviously, uh, there were disciples gathered in his mother's house, uh, probably indicating that he is a young man, a very young man. Um, but obviously he's in the company of believers. And so uh, in light of this, look at Acts 15, because many of you know the story about this guy. Acts 15, look at verse uh, 36. Paul and Barnabas are set to go out on their second missionary journey. They've gone through one. They came back and reported. 
they, they had this council in Jerusalem in chapter 15 to work out some of the issues about the gospel that were had among Jewish people. And now, verse 36, they're getting ready to go on their second missionary journey. And it says, and some, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them, here's our guy, John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Does that sound familiar? Who else did that? Demas. Paul said he loved this present world and he's left me. Here it looks like the same thing again, that, that this guy... John Mark somehow had deserted he and, he and Barnabas earlier. Verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And Barnabas took Mark, this guy, with him and went to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commanded by the brothers in the grace of our Lord. And he went a different direction. So here's a guy apparently that abandoned them and fell away. But, but Barnabas kind of takes him under his wing. And what's the end of this guy? Go back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. That same text where we read this about Demas, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, Paul writes to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get who? Mark. And do what? Bring him with you. Why? He's useful to me for ministry. Here's a guy who we would say fell off the wagon. But Barnabas saw something in him, took him under his wing. This guy ultimately was restored. And Paul recognizes that and he says, he, he, he stumbled as it were, but now I see he's He's persevering. In fact, this guy, under the influence of Peter, is going to write a gospel. Which one is that? The gospel of Mark. And just by these two examples, I think this is what we see in the Scripture plainly states it this way. Look at 1 John chapter 2. First John 2, verse 18, John writes and he says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. He's talking about teaching against Christ, people that put themselves in the place of Christ to teach things that Christ never said. He's dealing with false teachers, mostly something called Gnosticism in churches in his day. And here's what he says about these many antichrists, these people that have come proclaiming in the place of Christ to say something that Christ never said. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were never of us. If they had been of us, they would have what? They would have continued. But they actually went out that it might become plain that they're not of us. This is what the scripture teaches about perseverance of the saints and persevering in faith. Now, here's the fascinating thing. I only got through half my sermon tonight. I'll have to finish the other some other time. You have this tension in the Bible that says this. God saves you. He, he even provided the faith to save you. He keeps you. And then it says, so keep believing. So persevere. So press on. You say, well, if God is doing this, 
why do I have to do this? And that's the mind of God. The Bible doesn't answer that. All it says is, since God is doing this, you do this. And how will you know it's real in the end? Because genuine faith perseveres. And it perseveres all the way to the end. And you can't burn it out of people. You can't persecute it out of them. You can't threaten it out of them. It's the real thing. And this is God's work in us. But that also says, if you don't persevere, you were never of us. Wayne Grudem says this. Ultimately, our final attainment of salvation depends on God's power. Nevertheless, God's power continually works through our faith. Do we wish to know whether God is guarding us? Well, if we continue to trust God through Christ, God is working and guarding us. And he should be thanked. And I think that's as good as we can summarize that. So, beloved, the truth of the matter is, is once you are truly saved and united to Christ, you're always saved. You cannot lose your salvation. But when we read these circumstances of people who looks like it was the real thing, it shouldn't shake our faith because God has anticipated it through these examples in Scripture and even passages that we've looked at. But we should always in our own heart remember that if, if it were up to me to hold on, I wouldn't. God keeps me. But I must be earnest in growing in my faith and pursuing him. Because that's what real faith looks like. All right. All right, let's pray. And I'll let you go tonight.